folks. This is a fundraising pitch. Uh, you might have noticed that the show's been on hiatus for about the last six months. Okay, why? Well, I've been producing the Korea File ad-free for the last three years. That's 68 episodes. And it takes a lot of time and effort to track down interviews, research, edit, and produce the show. Of course, I gotta work to pay the rent, which doesn't leave a lot of time to focus on the podcast. So I'm wondering, is it possible to turn this into a part-time job? Maybe, but I need your help. Go to patreon.com slash thekoreafile and throw me a few dollars a month. For the price of a cup of coffee at Tom and Tom's, for the cost of a sandwich at Isaac Toast, you can help turn this podcast into a sustainable project. And patrons get perks. For an ongoing donation of just $4 a month, you'll have access to extra content that you won't find anywhere else online, including bonus interviews and special subscriber-only episodes. If you can afford to contribute a little more every month, $10 donation gets you exclusive VIP access to information about upcoming guests and the opportunity to submit questions for future episodes, a kind of executive producer position. But hey, every dollar helps a lot, and listeners like you can help to sustain this podcast. So if you can contribute, again, go to patreon.com slash thekoreafile and donate a few bucks. Thanks. All right. Here's the episode. Broadcasting from Montreal, this is The Korea File, a monthly podcast about music, culture, and society from around the peninsula and the world. I'm Andre Goulet. On this episode, academics have long examined the relationship between nation-states and their internal others, like immigrants and ethnic or racial minorities. Now, with her award-winning book, Contested Embrace, Transborder Membership Politics in 20th Century Korea, Jun Kim shifts this focus to look at how a state relates to people it sees as diasporic external members. In this conversation, Kim shares some of the ideas behind her comparative historical and ethnographic study of the complex relationships between the states in the Korean Peninsula, colonial-era Korean migrants to Japan and Northeast China and their descendants, and the states in which they've lived over the course of the 20th century. This episode was produced in collaboration with the University of Michigan's NAM Center for Korean Studies. In your book, Contested Embrace, Transborder Membership Politics in 20th Century Korea, you explore making, unmaking, and remaking transborder ties, transborder membership politics. What does that mean? So, uh, you know, like many scholars in the field of um, international migration, nationalism, and citizenship um, have long examined um, the challenges that various types of um, internal others such as immigrants or ethnic minorities who are sort of seen as others but still living within the territorial boundary of the state um, opposed to some 
like regulatory idea of the modern nation state. So we sort of have this conception that um, the uh, boundary of the territory, the boundary of the citizenry, and the boundary of the nation must coincide with each other, right? Um, so that sort of has been the center of the attention before, but in the past two decades or so, uh, scholars have also begun to show growing interest in the membership politics um, engendered by the shifting relationship um, between the state and perhaps we can call its external members. So they are residing outside the territorial boundary um, of the state, but are still considered as belonging to the state or to the nation that owns the state for some reasons. So how this uh, particular relationship between the state and the population who are located like transborder, um, how that sort of a politics shifts and uh, creates some challenges for both parties. Uh, that's what is called the transborder membership politics. So these populations, this Korean diaspora, their roots, whether in China, Japan, the United States or around the world, are in Korea's colonial history. So when was Korea a Japanese colony? So uh, Korea was a Japanese colony like in the first half of the 20th century, like precisely perhaps starting in 1905 as a protectorate of Japan and with the defeat of Japan uh, in the Pacific War, like in 1945, uh, Korea sort of became an independent country again. And um, Japan's occupation of Korea at the turn of the 20th century just basically gave the colony a turbulent push into the global economy, and also a lot of a lot of Japanese, right? Colonizers uh, moved from the metropole, uh, displacing millions of Koreans in the process. So that sort of gave the push for the massive outmigration of colonial Koreans uh, to other parts of the empire. So, for instance, the Japanese archipelagos, uh, the metropole of the empire, or uh, to what. Uh, what's called Manchuria back then, so uh, the present-day Northeast China, that was a sort of a contested borderland between the Japanese Empire and China, later became sort of part of the Japanese Empire. Uh, and also they certainly moved to um, outside the empire, which included um, you know, some part of the United States, like including Hawaii and some part of um, Russia, later to Soviet Union. So certainly you're right, the, the root of the Korean diaspora uh, is located in the colonial history of Korea. Right. And prior to the Japanese colonial occupation of the peninsula, Korea was a Chinese tributary state for centuries. And today, South Korea hosts nearly 30,000 American troops around the country. So the notion of Korean independence and identity is a complicated one. Uh, in your second, uh, in the, your book's second chapter, you write about the Cold War era competition over Japan's population of ethnic Koreans. So who are the Zionichi? So um, it's kind of interesting, like, how to call them. So just basically here, I am looking at um, the um, colonial era ethnic Korean migrants who remained in Japan and their descendants. And um, 
in other cases, you know, people might call them, for instance, Korean Japanese, right? Because we call, for instance, uh, Koreans living in the United States, like Korean Americans. They are ethnically Korean, but they are American citizens. But uh, scholars actually hesitate uh, to call them Korean Japanese. And um, some of those ethnic Koreans living in Japan actually reject the term. And it is sort of um, related to very complicated history of colonial migration and post-colonial treatment uh, of ethnic Koreans in Japan. So when we you know, talk about Korean American or Korean Chinese, uh, there is some sort of assumption about the sort of distinction between ethnic identity and citizenship. Uh, but in post-war Japan, uh, Koreans, like ex-colonial population, uh, were not really treated as part of the newly constituted Japanese citizenry. The Japanese government did not really want them to stay and also very hesitant to grant them um, Japanese citizenship after the collapse of the Japanese empire. And the idea of being Japanese uh, was very much closely connected with the idea of culture Japanese-ness, um, from which uh, Koreans have been largely excluded. And of course, some Koreans didn't quite like the idea that uh, if they want to become Japanese citizens, they also have to sort of culturally assimilate it into Japanese. Um, so for all kinds of uh, complicated um, legal and political and cultural reasons. Um, Koreans in Japan, uh, in many cases, sort of occurred like Zainichi Jusenjin or Zainichi Kankukujin. Uh, so Zainichi just meaning like residing in Japan, which is a weird term because, you know, they are not just temporarily living in Japan. It's like fourth generation, fifth generation Koreans and maybe culturally pretty Japanese too at this point. Um, but because of this complicated political and legal and cultural history, um, scholars and often uh, Zainichi Koreans themselves just use Zainichi to uh, refer to themselves. And um, in, in sort of consideration of this um, complicated factor, I decided to just call them Zainichi Koreans in my book as well. Okay, and of course, the insularity of Japanese culture is one of the reasons that Korean Japanese are incapable of becoming a closer part of the society. So just to unpack some of this history, after Japan's wartime defeat in 1945, how many Koreans were living in Japan at the time? At the time, like... Um, so. A lot of Koreans like moved to uh, Japan during the colonial period, uh, in part like voluntarily, in part uh, because they were forced to do that. And at the end of the war, there were about like two million Koreans uh, in the Japanese archipelago, and and of course many came back to Korea. Uh, sometimes voluntarily, other times not quite voluntarily, uh, but in many cases uh, the both the Japanese government and also the U.S. occupying force actually preferred uh, Koreans going back to Korea rather than staying uh, in the Japanese archipelago. But again, many people already set up their livelihood in Japan. Uh, and also the situation in Korea wasn't quite you know, peaceful or prosperous at all. Um, it was just basically very much you know, chaos, um, the ideological conflict, very poor. Many people coming back from all over the world just created all kinds of academic and political difficulty. So eventually, um, about 0.6 million or 0.5 million, like somewhere between them, like just depending on um, the statistics, 
remained in Japan, and actually some Koreans came back. So it was like you know they returned to the Korean Peninsula, but after you know going through a lot of things. I mean, some cases, um, if you know they were born in Japan, even like readjusting to the Korean situation wasn't quite. Easy, um, as you may know, uh, the political um, turbulence in the southern part of the Korean peninsula led to led to some uh, the government involved uh, civilian massacre, um, especially in Jeju Island and other parts. So some also sort of fled uh, those uh, political turbulences again to go back to Japan, uh, and and in those cases, so they went back to Korea and they came back to Japan. But Japan did not actually really allow Koreans who once returned to the Korean Peninsula to come back, so they kind of became illegal immigrants in Japan. Yeah, and I believe Osaka actually has right. as many as a hundred thousand people from Jeju background uh, living right. in that right. in that so, diaspora. Right. So uh, actually, people in Jeju started to like. Uh, migrate to Osaka pretty early on, uh, much earlier than other parts of the Korean Peninsula. So Osaka was certainly the kind of ethnic enclave where you could find many people, particularly from the Jeju Islands. So prior to the Korean War and the national division of the country, uh, and after the Korean War, when there was two distinct governments uh, on the peninsula, I'm wondering about the competition between Pyongyang and Seoul for the uh, loyalty of Koreans living abroad. Tell us more about that. North and South Korea competed vehemently to claim Zionist Koreans, uh, their loyalty. Um, and it was particularly focused, this competition was really focused on uh, Zionist Koreans, but not other Korean diasporas, for instance, Korean Chinese in part because the Japanese government kind of created a political vacuum. Um, so, for instance, in China, Koreans who remained in Manchuria were collectively granted Chinese citizenship. So they were just like without doubt Chinese citizens. But in Japan, because the Japanese government did not really want to grant uh, its ex-colonial population who remained in Japan after the defeat of Japanese citizenship, uh, they collectively stripped Koreans uh, of Japanese citizenship. So just basically uh, 0.6 million stateless people were created in Japan. And um, interestingly, Neither North Korea nor South Korea protested this um, abrupt disenfranchisement of the Korean population in Japan uh, because they kind of saw the idea that they would be considered as Japanese uh, as a neo-colonial affront for their independence, right? So, you know, Koreans became Japanese um, by colonization, and now Koreans have two independent states. So why should Koreans become Japanese? So instead, uh, instead, for instance, pushing for um, the um, Japanese citizenship uh, granted to the Korean population in Japan, they competed to create uh, lawyer North Koreans or South Koreans out of Koreans who were left in the Japanese archipelago. Right. And this is such an interesting and unknown uh, sort of shadow situation that we know very little about outside of 
Japan and Korea. So after 70 years, there's these representative organizations uh, of both the South and North Korean governments. They're kind of institutionalized within Japanese society uh, and with the Zionichi. So are they just a normal aspect of the lives that ethnic Koreans engage with when living in Japan? And do they still compete for the uh, loyalty of these Zionichi today? I would say today they are not really too, uh, so central uh, to the everyday life of Zionist Koreans now. And nowadays, a lot of people became Japanese citizens. You know, if you're like fourth generation and fifth generation Zionist Koreans, uh, you might just, you know, go for Japanese citizenship, although it is still like a surprising me, like the percentage is low. Um, I'd say, I mean, certainly they were very important in the 1950s and 60s and 70s, uh, particularly because of the kind of North-South competition over Zionist Koreans. And because these Koreans were not located in the Korean Peninsula, they were just basically beyond the reach of uh, both North and South Korean governments. Basically, the pro-South Korea uh, organization uh, called Mindan and uh, the pro-North Korea organization called uh, Chongnyan or Soren in Japanese, they played almost like a pseudo-state role, like almost like consular offices um, in Japan for Zionist Koreans. Um, and sometimes the conflict became too fierce. And um, so it, it, if you are aligning with like one organization, you might not really um, associate with, with others who are uh, more supportive of the other organization. So that was the case in the 1950s and 60s and 70s, uh, but certainly they are less relevant to the everyday life of Zionist Koreans today. Uh, how do attitudes towards the Zionichi differ in the South compared to the North? Is there a difference in how they're perceived? Well, uh, that's a complicated question. I mean, certainly um, interesting thing is like in the 50s and 60s, so Zionist Koreans, um, for all kinds of reasons, actually the absolute majority uh, are from the southern part of the peninsula. But for, again, complicated reasons and maybe surprisingly uh, to the contemporary observer, North Korea garnered much stronger support in the first few decades um, of this competition. So uh, from the perspective of North Korea, Zionichi uh, Koreans were the ones like who are located in the former metropole, uh, still under the influence of the new imperial um, coalition between uh, Japan, the United States, and the South Korean puppet regime. So they kind of, North Korea represented itself as a safe haven uh, for uh, Zionist Koreans who were sort of persecuted and discriminated against in Japan. And that was like one of the reasons why um, the North Korea's repatriation campaign that I uh, analyzed in my book was very successful. But South Korea was much more suspicious toward uh, Zionist Koreans. So like one, uh, although they many of them came from the southern peninsula, uh, majority were more supportive of North Korea for all kinds of reasons. Um, part of the reason was because like, some of them actually fled, like the South Korean government involved civilian massacre um, in the 1940s and, and 50s. Um, so from the South Korean perspective, uh, which was a weak but very like anti-communist country, they were very suspicious of the political leaning of Zionist Koreans. 
Uh, but in the 1960s and 70s, uh, as Japanese economy took over, um, uh, became much more developed, um, the South Korea, the South Korean government also wanted the Zionist Koreans to get involved in, in the economic development in South Korea by, you know, sending remittances or by investing in their hometowns, etc. Um, so Zionist Koreans were sort of like seen as, okay, some sort of, you know, economic resources for the national development, but politically very suspicious as well. Um, so the, the relationship between South Korea and Zionist Koreans were much more fraught. And that uh, legacy still remains, um, especially for those uh, who did not change their identification into South Korea and are still somehow seen as more pro-North Korea by the South Korean government. The third chapter of Contested Embrace looks at another diasporic population in uh, beyond Bamboo Curtain and Hermit Kingdom, Korean Chinese between two socialist fatherlands. So uh, you say that the successful incorporation of Koreans who remained in Manchuria into communist China led to their disavowment by South Korea, and yet this incorporation wasn't necessarily seen as incompatible with their special ties to North Korea. So why not? Um, it is just because of the complicated geopolitical alignment in Northeast Asia um, after the collapse of the Japanese Empire. So just basically, um, China and North Korea were kind of blood allies, um, you know, during the Chinese Civil War and also the Korean War. China was, uh, you know, a big sort of a supporter of North Korea during the Korean War. And Korean uh, community in Northeast China, uh, in part because they were very poor, like they were very poor peasants under the Japanese Empire. Um, so despite some sort of um, ethnic conflict between Han Chinese and, and Koreans who settled in Manchuria, they were seen by the Communist Party as oppressed nation with whom the Chinese Communist Party had to ally with to uh, win the fight against uh, imperialism. It could be the Japanese imperialism and from their perspective, of course, the, the American imperialism. Um, so the Koreans were um, actively recruited uh, by uh, the Chinese Communist Party, and they were very much part of the nation building effort at the, in, in the 1940s and 50s. So you could think like unlike other ethnic minorities, Koreans were sort of considered as a, something like modern minority in China. So China was very much um, uh, like into like attentive to the kind of demand from below and also the kind of alliance that it had with North Korea. The Korean community in North China was seen as, as a sort of a critical component and North Korea and China maintained very malleable um, and flexible attitude toward the exact citizenship status of the Korean minority in China, maybe up to like mid 1960s. So for about two decades, uh, although China gave um, the Korean minority Chinese citizenship, the Communist Party sometimes grudgingly acknowledged that North Korea is kind of considered, was considered another fatherland of the Korean minority um, up to 
about like 1960s. But in the mid 1960s, with the Cultural Revolution, everything changed. And finally, in the book's fourth chapter, you discuss the struggle for inclusion in the Korean Chinese return migration to post Cold War South Korea. Briefly, what can you tell us about that era? So, uh, as I s- explained. Um, the Korean minority in China was very much uh, actively recruited by the Chinese Communist Party. They were part of the um, the multinational um, building, multinational uh, state building project in China. So there was just basically no contact between the Korean minority in China and South Korea throughout the Cold War. But this began to change dramatically starting in the late 1980s. Um, as the effect of um, dramatic economic development in South Korea and also rapid incorporation of post-Mao China into the global economy. So basically, you know, you may have heard a lot about uh, the Chinese peasants sort of you know, migrate to cities and, and work. And in the Korean minority community case, they started to migrate massively to South Korea, for instance, rather than to other cities like you know, Shenzhen or Shanghai or Beijing, although they went there too. But basically, South Korea was a rediscovered affluent homeland. They could speak the language. Uh, many of them had family relations still left uh, in the Korean Peninsula. So South Korea just basically became the most popular destination country for the migration boom uh, in the Korean Chinese community in the 1980s and 90s and 2000s. So they started to migrate. And then the question uh, of like how to treat them, these Korean Chinese uh, quote-unquote return migrants, um, whether because they are Chinese citizens, right? So whether or not the South Korean government or the society uh, should treat them as uh, foreign migrant workers, like other migrant workers in South Korea, like from Southeast Asia or Han Chinese workers, or because they have ethnic heritage and their parents or grandparents actually came from the Korean Peninsula. Um, should they be treated differently as part of the Korean nation? So that became a controversial issue uh, in the 1990s and 2000s. And the government and the South Korean society uh, were initially sort of, you know, very like more sort of control minded. Um, so many of them uh, couldn't really come to South Korea uh, with legal status because uh, the government was pretty much um on intently on like controlling this influx. But from the perspective of Korean Chinese, um, they are actually coming back to their ancestral homeland. So being treated like foreign illegal immigrants uh, was quite an insert and also became a source of resentment. And today, are Korean China, uh, ethnically Korean Chinese treated differently in the context of South Korean society? Yes. Um, so the legal... Uh, barriers for their immigration uh, have been uh, loosened. So nowadays, uh, migration to South Korea is easier than before, uh, maybe starting in the early 2010s. Um, but still, the kind of cultural and social acceptance uh, by the South Korean society has not really happened. So sometimes the kind of um, stereotyping uh, that we would expect uh, that many other immigrant population would experience uh, in 
the country where they work, uh, Korean Chinese experience that. Um, so, you know, sometimes people would think that, you know, Korean Chinese are more Chinese than Korean. Um, they would think that, like, you know, some kind of stereotyping, like, you know, Korean Chinese are more, you know, crime prone, um, more, you know, some idea of this illegality. And this is something that, like, all, all kinds of immigrants would experience. Um, Korean Chinese experience that in their ancestral homeland. What else can listeners look forward to hearing from your NAM Center for Korean Studies colloquium lecture streaming now on YouTube? Well, so I basically, like, focused on um, two chapters of my um, book. So, like, one um, about um, North South competition over uh, Zainich Koreans and to uh, this exclusion uh, from the South Korean government and the fight for inclusion engaged by Korean Chinese. And in my talk, I actually focused on the kind of micro-political struggles um, people engaged in bureaucratic settings. So rather than this sort of a big story about, uh, you know, political struggles, social movement, legislations, I focused on the kind of everyday struggle they experience in immigration offices, uh, municipalities, consular offices, over uh, documentation and registration of their identity. Um, so with the background that I provided today, maybe if you uh, watch the YouTube streaming or, or listen listen to me talking uh, in the lecture, you would perhaps get a more sort of concrete picture of how this sort of everyday struggle unfolded in uh, seemingly mundane bureaucratic transactions with state officials. Jaeyoon Kim received her PhD from UCLA and was a postdoctoral fellow at Princeton and Stanford. She's currently an assistant professor of sociology and Korean studies at the University of Michigan. Her next book is going to be an ethnographic exploration of undocumented migrants seeking asylum on religious grounds in the United States. Jaeyoon, it was a pleasure speaking with you. Thanks for taking the time to talk with The Korea File. Thanks a lot. It's my pleasure. Thanks. That's the Korea file for this month. If you can afford to help out the show financially with a few dollars, go to patreon.com slash the Korea file to become a monthly patron of this podcast. It's the support of listeners like you that helps the Koreafile expand eventually, I hope, into a bi-weekly show. If you can support us, thanks. To see Jaeyoon Kim's full Nam Center lecture, look for Contested Embrace Trans-Border Membership Politics in 20th Century Korea on YouTube. While you're there, subscribe to the Nam Center's YouTube channel at U-M-I-C-H-N-C-K-S. Music on this episode is Kim Gwang Suk's Numuapun Sarangun Sarangi Aniutumud. You can subscribe to the Korea file on iTunes and Stitcher or find us at koreafm.net and Anglo Info Seoul. Find them and like them on Facebook. You can find the Korea file there too and follow me on Twitter at Andre Margoulet. Thanks to Jaeyoon Kim and the University of Michigan's Nam Center for Korean Studies. Until next month, I'm Andre Goulet. Thanks for listening.
사랑이 아니었음